Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. But it's good to be back, and it's good to be back here on uh, Palm Sunday. And I really love seeing the kids, especially with, with the palm branches. I have fond memories of growing up as a kid, having those little palm branches. And now it has a whole new meaning as we've gone into the area of being an adult and seeing the significance of what's going on there. Well, today we sort of begin to celebrate what is a really exciting part in the Christian church. Today is Palm Sunday. And we remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And then next week is Easter, which is Resurrection Sunday. We remember Jesus coming out of the grave to new life. And so this is really good stuff in this time of year. Um, but you wonder, how do you go from Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday next week? Jesus came into Jerusalem and it was to the cheers and to the applause of the people. But it wasn't long until things changed. On Thursday night, one of his own disciples be, betrayed him. Then by Friday morning, he had already been put on the cross by 9 a.m. From noon till three, it was darkness over the land and when he died. And then by evening on Friday, he was in the grave. And then he was in the grave Friday night, Saturday and Sunday. But Sunday morning, Jesus rose to new life. Amen? Now, that's the whole story there. That's the excitement of it. You may wonder, well, how do I know that Jesus literally rose from the dead? This is not just a fairy tale. Or what does the resurrection actually mean for me? And how does it change my life? Those are the questions we're going to look at next week. So make sure you're here as we study the resurrection. But this week, we're looking at the triumphal entry, also known as Palm Sunday. Jesus coming into Jerusalem at the beginning of the weeks. So let's dive into that. After almost about three years of ministry, Jesus went into Jerusalem to celebrate what would be his final Passover. The crowds were cheering for him. Sort of like he was a quarterback who threw the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. People were thrilled with him. But while the crowds loved Jesus, Jesus was very much aware that that love was shallow. It was superficial. They loved Jesus' healings. They loved his teaching. They loved his popularity. But in all honesty, they wanted to use Jesus for their own purposes. Not to, generally, to, not to honestly submit to Jesus and to follow Jesus. Now, why was the crowd so superficial? The honest truth is that people had misunderstood why Jesus actually came. They were looking for a political hero. They were looking for a revolutionary. They saw Jesus' ability to heal the sick and to raise the dead. They said, that is the kind of politician we need. That is the kind of person we need in charge. They can overthrow the Romans and lead us to freedom. If they had bumper stickers at that time, it would be, we want Jesus for president, is essentially what they were saying. But the truth is that Jesus was going into Jerusalem for something far more significant than a political reason, something far more significant than overthrowing the Romans. Jesus was going into Jerusalem to solve the problem behind all problems. The problem from which all other problems come is the problem of sin. The problem of our separation from God. The problem of our rebelliousness of our human heart. I mean, isn't that true? We look at war in the Ukraine and Russia, but where does that all come from? It comes from the sinfulness of the human heart. That's the problem that needs to be solved. We look at sickness and hospitals. Where does all that come from? The Bible says it's from sin. We look at thefts. Why do you have locks on your cars, locks on your houses, now locks on your smartphones? Because people steal things. That's all a symptom of a broken human heart. And that's what needs to be solved. That's what Jesus went into Jerusalem to solve on that day. 
by dying on the cross in our place for our sin. Now, that being stated, do we need good people who are politically, politically good and wise leaders? Of course we desperately need those people. But far more important is we need the problem with our relationship with God fixed and reconciled and our sin forgiven. And that's what Jesus went into Jerusalem to do. Now, the triumphal entry is actually uh, written about in all four Gospels. We're going to study the account from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. So I'd like to ask you, if you could, get out your copy of your Bibles. Um, turn to Luke chapter 19. Then stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along in your copy of God's word as I read the triumphal entry. And when he had said these things... He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, now Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice pray and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that ends the reading of the word of God. And you can be seated. <clears throat> if you have your outlines, take them out. We're going to spend a fair amount of time on the very first point, which is some background, because when we need we need some good background on this passage to adequately understand this passage. So we begin with the first verse, Luke 19, verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And this verse just sort of sets the scene for what follows. Let me show you how this looked. Go ahead and put the map up if you could. Thank you, Tyler. Jesus would have started up there in the north in Galilee. This is typically the route that people would use if they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem. They'd follow that line, then they would cross to the east side of the Jordan River. They'd go in the area of Perea, which is where you can see in, in blue circled there. Then they'd cross the Jordan River again, right at the area of Jericho. And then they would take the trek up the mountains into Bethany, Bethpage, and ultimately into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was doing this trek, but Jesus certainly was not alone. This was Passover season. So there is a whole crowd of people that are going along with him on this very same path. And I think it's also important for me to point out for you that at this time, <clears throat> Jesus' popularity was really at its peak. This is his third year in, of ministry. And at this point, he's been doing healing. In fact, he has healed everybody, everywhere, of everything. 
with just a simple touch or just a simple word. It didn't matter what it was, even leprosy, where body parts were now fallen off and missing. Jesus restored them completely, totally, instantly. People who were blind, Jesus restored their sight with just a touch. Everybody was coming to Jesus and being healed by Jesus. The picture is, really, at this point, Jesus has almost wiped out sickness in the land. In the land. Doctors are really unemployed because of Jesus, because he's healed so many people. This gives you an idea of the kind of popularity that Jesus has at this point. So it's not Jesus is just one of the crowd. Jesus is in the crowd, but there's a huge swath of people around Jesus in the crowd because you want to be next to him. You want to talk to him. Everybody knows about him. But it wasn't just Jesus' healings that made him incredibly famous at this point. It was his teaching. When we studied the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus sometimes would try to get away with his disciples. They'd actually go in the wilderness to just get a break from the crowds. But the crowds would actually follow him into the wilderness. And Jesus still has a heart of compassion, so he would begin teaching them. And they would listen to him speak for days without food. From a public speaking perspective, I mean, that's impressive. If people will go without meals to actually hear you speak, you must be a very good speaker. That's Jesus. So people want to be around him because of his incredible amount of healings, his teachings. And we know that at this point, he's actually come into the area of Jericho. And he stayed in Jericho, in the scriptures say, two days. And when he was there, he healed some blind men. While there's actually two of them, the Gospel of Mark, when we studied it, focused in on one, a guy named Bartimaeus. We nicknamed him Blind Bart at that time. And Jesus healed Blind Bart and his blind buddy. And instantly, completely, and you know what those guys were doing running around Jericho. Hey, let me tell you, Jesus healed me. Well, well I know you. You've been blind for years. Why do you have 20-20 vision now? Jesus even more people are gathering around Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. More healings. But Jesus is not just opening blind physical eyes. He's opening blind hearts. Because in Jericho, there was also a man named Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the little kid? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up the sycamore fig tree. Well, he wasn't just a short guy. He was a tax guy. And he was the chief tax collector in Jericho. Now, the tax collectors at that time, they were Jews that worked for the Romans. They received your taxes that they turned over to the Romans, but they also were known for extorting extra money from people. They didn't like you. They wanted extra money from you. They could just take it from you, and there's nothing you could do about it. So people don't like Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is not just working for the Romans. But Zacchaeus is a little bit like a mafia boss. He takes whatever extra he really wants to line his own pockets with. While people stay away from Zacchaeus and he went up a tree so he could see Jesus, Jesus doesn't stay away from him. In fact, Jesus saw him and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to have lunch at your house. Jesus toes to spend time with him. And in that meal, something changed in Zacchaeus' heart. You and I would say Zacchaeus is born again. He comes and he's a complete follower of Jesus after that. And a follower to such a point that he says, I'm going to give back any money that I legally took or extorted. I'm not just going to give the money back that I took or extorted. I'm going to give back four times as much money as I took or extorted. That sounds like a changed life to me. Whenever something grabs your pocketbook like that, you know that's a changed heart and a changed person. But Jesus is not just opening blind eyes and not just opening blind hearts. But just a little way up the road is the area of Bethany. And only a few weeks before this, in Bethany, there had been a funeral. 
the man's name was Lazarus, and he has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they were close with Jesus. Jesus arrived sort of too late. He had already died. He was actually in the grave, in the grave for four days when Jesus arrived. But Jesus said, you know, roll the stone away from the grave. And I love Martha's reaction at that point, Lazarus' sister. Martha says, no, don't do that. He stinketh. Rotten human flesh. Jesus said, no, roll that gravestone back. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead, rotting, decaying body of Lazarus is instantly filled with life. And he comes out with the grave clothes on. I sort of picture that like when you go to camp, remember those mummy sleeping bags? And they tighten, you get all tight, and this is Lazarus coming out of the grave, you know? <laughs> Can somebody unwrap me? And for the last few weeks, Lazarus has been having lunch with people around town, lunch with people that attended his funeral, and telling them how Jesus brought him out of the grave, and Jesus gave him literal life from death. And that is just up the road from Jericho. Do you think people are excited to see Jesus at this point? Jesus, I'm telling you, is insanely popular at this moment. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. Everybody wants to talk with Jesus. We cannot miss this. If you see Jesus just one of the people going into Jerusalem at that Passover, you're missing the context. Everybody is next to Jesus. But the problem is, this enthusiasm for Jesus, as I said to you earlier, is really just superficial. It's all political. Maybe Jesus is the one who can help us overthrow the Romans. Maybe Jesus is the one who could make us large and in charge again, when the reality is Jesus is I'm going into Jerusalem to solve a problem much bigger than the Romans. I'm going in to solve the problem behind all problems, the problem of sin itself. So let's go ahead and dive into the text a little bit more. Oh, one more thing. Two more things in the way of background. Excuse me. I almost missed that. Uh, one question. Why did Jesus allow people to worship him? That may not sound like an important question, but if you read along in the Gospels, you know that this is not the first time that people have been filled with affection and adoration for Jesus. Not the first time they actually wanted to make him king. John chapter 6, they wanted to make him king, but it says that Jesus intentionally slipped away. But here, in the triumphal entry, at the end of his life, instead of avoiding all of this uh, worship and adoration, he actually leans into this worship, leans into the adoration, and accepts it and receives it. Why this sudden change for Jesus? Avoid it for all the three years before. Embrace it in these very final days. No, I don't know for sure, but I have a theory, and I'll share it with you. Matthew chapter 26, we learn that the uh, religious leaders have made a decision that they want to actually arrest Jesus during Passover, but they want to execute him after Passover, after the crowds have died down a little bit. Much safer time to execute Jesus, because they know everybody loves him. But that doesn't fit on God's timetable. God's timetable was that Jesus would be arrested during Passover, and Jesus would die during Passover, specifically that Jesus would die on Friday at the same time the Passover lambs were slain. The Gospel of John is adamant about this, that Jesus Christ is the one true Passover lamb of God that all the other lambs actually just serve to point forward to. But Jesus is the one lamb that when he was slain would actually truly take away sin. We even see this in the beginning of the Gospel of John, where John the Baptist says this about Jesus Christ in John 1.29. He said, Behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we have this problem. 
in Jesus's timetable, Jesus has to die, or God's timetable, Jesus has to die on Friday when the Passover lambs were slain. The religious leaders want to arrest Jesus, but execute him after the Passover. How are we going to move things up a little bit? Well, when the religious leaders see this huge mob of people worshiping Jesus, this huge mob of people wanting Jesus to be king, wanting Jesus to help them overthrow the Romans, they begin to panic. We have to get rid of Jesus as soon as possible. Even if it's during the Passover, we have to get arrest him and get rid of him, which sort of gives you the expeditious nature of Jesus being turned over on Thursday night and by Friday morning at 9 a.m. already being on the cross. Let's get rid of him as fast as possible. He's too popular. Next question, I think is important by introduction. How many people were worshiping Jesus? Now, this is actually speculation. So if you disagree with me, that's fine. But just come up with a better theory of your own. Here's, we only really have one hard date to give us some numerical values. That's Josephus. Uh, he's an ancient historian who writes about a Passover that took place 10 years after the Passover where Jesus was, was slain. And he says at that time there were 260,000 Passover lambs that were killed. And typically there was one Passover lamb for every 10 Jews. So it's easy to figure out the math of the number of people who probably participated in Passover that year, around 2.6 million. We can, I think, safely assume the Passover that took place when Jesus was killed and the, a Passover 10 years later were probably not much different in numerical size. So let's just say there's roughly 2 million people that attended Passover. Now you begin to wonder, well, how many people were actually involved in the, in the triumphal entry? How many people were around Jesus? We know he's insanely popular. Everybody wants to be around him. The people are not just around him as he's coming into Jerusalem, but honestly, if you look at Matthew, I think it also tells us people are coming out of Jerusalem as well to meet him because they have all heard about Lazarus and they all want to meet this guy. So there's this huge crowd, maybe what? Um, 10% of the people? 5% of the people? Just... 2.5% of the population? Well, then start doing the math. If it's 10% of the people who have come out to see him and there's 2 million, that's 200,000 people. If it's 5%, that's 100,000 people. 2.5%, little tiny thing, 50,000 people. It's a lot of people around Jesus. And obviously, if you're the religious leaders and 50,000 people are cheering for Jesus when he comes into town and you don't like him, you would get rid of him in a hurry because there's a lot of people that are fascinated by Jesus. So let's go ahead and dive a little further into the text. <clears throat> Jesus entered Jerusalem in a position of humility. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Let me give you a little bit more detail here. Go ahead and put the map up. This gives you a sort of a, a lateral view. Uh, Jericho, which is where he crossed the, the Jordan River, that's 720 feet below sea level. The Mount of Olives is 2,600 feet above sea level. Bethany and Bethpage, which are not on the map, they would be just a little bit down from the Mount of Olives. They're about 15, uh, 1,516 feet above sea level. The distance between Jericho and Bethany is roughly only 13 miles. So it is a straight uphill climb. Now let me tell you a little bit about Bethany and Bethpage. For us, they're just names, but in Hebrew, there's great explanation to them. Um, Beth, Beth-ani, literally in Hebrew means house of dates. Beth-page means literally house of figs. And they're right next to the Mount of Olives. So what do you think 
goes on in this area? Can anybody say farmers? You know, date town, fig town, olive mountain. That's what this region is. It's a farming region just outside of Jerusalem. Bethany and Bethpage are only two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus has sent two of his disciples into what is most likely Bethpage to pick up his ride. A colt. He's going to ride into town. Saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So they go into Bethpage, and there's going to be a colt there. Typically today we would call this a carjacking. But in this time, we call it a colt jacking, stealing a ride that is not yours. Now, the question is, well, how does Jesus know about this colt that happens to be tied up outside of the city of Bethpage on the side of the road? How does he know this information? Well, I know what you younger people say. Well, he, obviously, he got on his cell phone and looked at the Bethpage webcam. That's not the way it worked. The truth is that Jesus is God. Jesus knows things that you and I wouldn't normally know. We've already seen this as we studied Jesus' life. For instance, Jesus has intimate details about the future and the way things would unfold. Jesus told his disciples that one of you will betray me. And he specifically said, when John said to him in the Gospel of John, like, who is it? He said, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread. He knew who was going to betray him even before Judas betrayed him because Jesus knows the future. Jesus has already, Jesus, Jesus knows the future. Jesus has already told his disciples that he was going to be killed and betrayed by the chief priests. He already told them he's going to be killed on the cross. He's already told them he's going to be in the, the grave for three days. He's already told them he's going to rise from the dead. He knows how the future is going to unfold. But Jesus does not just know the way the future will unfold. He knows things that are happening in places where he is not located. Like there's a cult in the next town tied up on the side of the road. And when you go to take it, someone's going to resist you and say, why are you taking this cult? And I'll tell you what to say to them. Just simply say, the Lord has need of it, and that answer will be good enough. I know how that's all going to work because he's Jesus. Now, the parallel account of the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Matthew tells us there was not just a colt tied up in the side of the road, but there was actually a donkey there. Its mother was tied up with it, and they were to bring both of those animals. And here, I think, is a great application for us. Isn't it amazing how Jesus knows about the location of an animal in another place where he's not located. But not just that, he knew the entire life history of that animal. It's a cult upon which no one has ever yet ridden. Folks, Jesus doesn't just know about a cult in another town. He knows all about you. He knows all about me. And he knows our entire life history. He knows all of our sin. He knows all of our pain. He knows what keeps us up late at night with worries. He knows about our sorrows. Jesus knows us completely. But here's what's amazing. He loves us fully. Knowing everything there is to know about us not able to hide any sin or any failure from him. He loves us so much that he went into Jerusalem intentionally to die in your place for your sin, to bring us back to God, and we deserve absolutely none of it. That's amazing. One thing that all of us want we want a spouse, for instance. 
who knows us as we truly are and still loves us in spite of ourselves. I'm going to tell you, there's someone who knows us even better than we know ourselves and loves us even more than your spouse ever could. That's Jesus Christ. That's our wonderful Savior. The story continues. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Well, why are you untying the colt? And they said, Well, the Lord has need of it. In other words, everything transpired just the way Jesus said it would. Now, some of you may have questions in your heart. Really? This is an issue of Jesus knowing about a donkey and a colt in another town where he hasn't been. And this is an issue of Jesus' divine foreknowledge. I don't buy it. Some of you are going to say, this is just good planning on the part of Jesus. It's sort of like reserving a rental car. He probably talked to a friend and said, hey, I'm going to need a colt. Why don't you just leave it outside of Beth Page? I'll send two disciples to pick it up. It's just all good planning and reservations. Well, if you think that Jesus doesn't have intimate knowledge of things that are going on in another place at another time, let me bring you to another passage of Scripture. Do you guys remember the beginning of the Gospel of John where Jesus is sort of grabbing his disciples and there's the issue of Nathaniel and he has Nathaniel comes to Jesus and Jesus starts talking to Nathaniel about his personal private life that nobody but Nathaniel knows about. Nobody but Nathaniel and uh, Jesus, who's God, who knows things that are happening where he's not even there. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, what was happening under that fig tree? I have no idea. Only Nathanael knows. Nathanael and Jesus, because he knows us completely. We find more of Jesus' knowledge as you continue looking at him in Scripture. He doesn't just know about what's going to happen in the future and about things that are taking place in locations where he's not located at. He knows people's hearts. John 2, 24-25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was, in a, what was in man. In other words, he knows people's hearts and people's thoughts. Mark chapter 2. Jesus, uh, before he heals a paralytic, he forgives the man's sins. And the scribes who were there at the time are thinking to themselves, this guy can't forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Now they never vocalized that, but they thought that. Look how Jesus responded. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So understand, Jesus doesn't just know the future and the way things will unfold. He doesn't just know things that are happening in places where he's not located at. He doesn't just know the life history of a cult and of you and me, but he knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts, and the one who knows us completely loves us so fully that he died in our place for you and for me to bring us back to God and we deserve none of it. Isn't this amazing? Let's get back into our story. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Well, 
Luke doesn't tell us this, but um, the parallel passage of the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this is actually a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, where it was very specifically said this is exactly what Jesus would do, ride into Jerusalem on a colt. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This prophecy was given 500 years before Jesus did this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus truly is the king of Israel, but he's not coming as a triumphant king to overthrow the Romans. He's coming humbly and he's going to bring salvation. The next section is the people expressed hollow adoration of Jesus. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Why would they do that? 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 tells us in the Old Testament that when you wanted to um, give somebody honor, you wanted to make somebody recognize them as a king, you threw your cloaks on the road in front of them. Gave them sort of a red carpet welcome of the clothes on your back. You know, and Shige and Luan were telling us in Japan what people do is they want to honor you, they bow before you. Uh, sort of a, a similar way here by throwing their jackets on the ground before you. There's a lot of people doing this. Remember, thousands upon thousands of people doing this. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Let's go ahead and um, put that picture up. This is what it looks like when you're at the Mount of Olives, when you crest it and you just get on the other side. It's an amazing view of Jerusalem from that point. You can see the, the gold Dome of the Rock. That is where the Temple Mount is located. The Dome of the Rock is actually put there by the Muslims around 690-something A.D. when the Muslims took over. But that is where the Temple Mount was. It's a beautiful, beautiful view. Originally, uh, when Jesus did this, Herod's temple was there. Remember, Herod's temple took 70 years to build. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was built out of marble, pure white. It was multiple football fields in size. That's how big it is. And people would say that it was difficult to look at the white in the brightness of the day because it reflected the sun so well. And what was not white marble was covered in gold, which reflected the sun with incredible beauty. So here you have in front of Jesus is an incredible picture of Jerusalem. You have maybe 50,000 people around Jesus singing his praises, enthusiastic for him, for all the incredible miracles, calming a storm with just a word feeding a multitude with a little boy's lunch. The list goes on and on, and everyone is saying, we want Jesus for president. And in case you doubt that's what they're saying, let's continue in the text, and you'll see how this gets very revealing. Verse 38, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's actually a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And you and I reading this wouldn't necessarily understand the historical background surrounding this. About a hundred years before this, Judas Maccabeus had risen up among the Jews and had led them in the overthrow of the Syrians. The Syrians at that time were occupying them, were controlling them, and Judas Maccabeus led them in the overthrow of the Syrians. And when he came back into town, these are the very words they chanted to him. This is the very psalm they used around him. What the people are saying is just as Judas Maccabeus led us in the overthrow of the Syrians a hundred years ago, Jesus, you rise up right now and lead us in the overthrow of the Romans today. This is all shallow love, all superficial love. They want him to be a political leader. 
Now, in Matthew 21, verse 8, which is the parallel passage of this in Matthew, we find that they were not just throwing their cloaks on the ground, but they were actually cutting branches of trees and throwing them on the ground. It doesn't tell us what kind of trees, but if you go to the parallel passage of the triumphal entry in the Gospel of John, there is when it specifically says that they were cutting the branches of palm trees, where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. Let's read where it says this in John chapter 12. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. There you go, that same quote again. Let me just unpack the very front of this. It's sort of fun. They were shouting Hosanna to him. Now, what does Hosanna mean? We have a lot of children's songs. Remember singing those Hosanna children's songs? But the kids didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> Hosanna means save us now. Jesus, we want you to be our king. We want you to overthrow the Romans and do it now is what they are saying. Now there's a part here that's sort of funny. You see this in the Gospel of John. Right prior to him entering, the chief priests had said this. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Does anybody know where Jesus is? Everybody knows where Jesus is. 50,000, 100,000 people all around Jesus, all worshiping Jesus, all singing praise to Jesus, enthusiastic for Jesus. Are they going to arrest him at this point? Absolutely not. They're afraid to touch him for fear of mob violence. So look what the Pharisees then turn around and say to Jesus. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I mean, don't let them worship you. Don't let them sing your praises. I mean, if we can't stop them doing that, maybe you can stop them. And Jesus responds with this. You see, he gets into the section where he condemns the city. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When we read that, it sounds to us like the stones crying out that the rocks of the city, and remember there are lots of them, these white marble stones would gain a mouth and start singing on their own. It's what it sounds like. But I don't believe that is what Jesus is referring to. What is he talking about? Oftentimes in the New Testament you find something confusing. You go back to the Old Testament and find some Old Testament background that might help explain it. And we find great explanation in the book of Habakkuk. When Habakkuk wrote, he was writing to people who had um, been beat up by the Chaldeans. That is also known as the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, by the way, were not known for their innovation and creativity. What they were known was for their barbarian nature. They would go into cities, they would conquer those cities, and they would take what was good and valuable from those cities and bring it back to their own cities and use it to construct their own cities. Literally, the stones and the wood from their conquered cities were built into their cities. Look what it says in Habakkuk chapter 2. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The very beams and rocks of the Babylonian cities were to be a lasting testimony of their barbarian nature and the bloodshed for which they, they caused. Now what Jesus is saying is one day, the very stones of Jerusalem, these beautiful stones, will serve as a lasting testimony that when Jesus came in, the people actually ended up rejecting him as their true king. They only received him as a, their king in a superficial nature. Because remember, while they're singing his praises at the beginning of the week, 
when he refuses to rise up in rebellion against the Romans, they'll be calling for his death by the end of the week because the praise is superficial. And he knows it. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. In Greek, incidentally, there's a couple different words for weeping, sort of describing the kind of crying. There's sort of a, when Jesus wept over Lazarus, it wasn't necessarily a, a crazy crying, it was crying. But the word here for weeping is the strongest word in the Greek language. It is complete bawling in agony. So picture this. All of these people are worshiping Jesus. They're singing praise to Jesus. They're excited for Jesus, though Jesus knows it's all superficial. He comes over the top of the Mount of Olives. He sees the beauty of the city in front of him, and he begins to cry and to weep uncontrollably because he can see the future. And that by rejecting Jesus as their Savior, he can see the future of what will happen to the city and the people. And it's not pretty. And he said, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What would make for peace? Not to have him as a political superhero who would overthrow the Romans, but the same message he's been giving throughout all of his gospels. Repent of your sin, turn to God, and trust in Jesus to be made right again. And Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem will be destroyed because they did not receive Jesus as their true king. Jesus says this in 30 AD. The year 66 AD, the Jews decided to stop paying their taxes to Rome. Remember, they don't like Rome. The Romans actually came to them and tried to negotiate with them and say, hey, we, we, you got to pay your taxes. Everybody's got to pay their taxes. That negotiation lasted for four years, and finally the Romans said they had enough. So they sent Titus, Vespian, and the Roman legions that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Josephus tells us there was 1.1 million people in the city. Sort of like the Russians tried to sound, surround Kiev to cut everything off. That's what the Romans did to Jerusalem. After five months of starving the city to death, the Romans finally breached the walls, went through the city, and Josephus writes about the fact is they killed everybody who had not died of the starvation was then killed. The streets literally ran red with the blood. The only people they saved were some of the youngest and strongest men that they would be taken to Rome to die in the gladiatorial arenas. Everybody died. And then they decided to take this mighty city and all these stones, some of which were 40 tons in size, and take them all off of one another and destroy them to be a lasting testimony for no one ever to rebel against the might and power of Rome. And they had left the West Wall, which is, we call it the Wailing Wall, is a little testimony of what was before, and some of the towers on the city, but everything else was destroyed. While the Romans said that that was done so people would learn never to rebel against them, Jesus says that would happen as a lasting testimony. The stones would cry out that on that day when Jesus came, the people did not recognize the day of their visitation when their true king came for them. All they wanted was a superficial king, a political hero, not somebody to actually take care of sin and to make them right with God. Because that, my friends, is the true problem behind all problems in the world today. Folks, not much has changed. This weekend, there's going to be a lot of people in church with Palm Sunday Next weekend, there's going to be a lot of people in church 
with Easter. But many of the people who are going to be in church, quite honestly, are going to be rest, are going to be worshiping Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're going to be saying, maybe if I worship Jesus, he'll make me successful in life. If I worship Jesus, he'll take away all the, the problems in my life. If I worship Jesus, maybe all the, the, the difficulties and challenges in my family will start to get ironed out. Jesus will solve all my superficial issues. He may, he may not. He didn't come to solve superficial issues. He came to solve the problem behind all problems. The problem of sin, which separates us from God sin which causes evil in this world and he came to give us a new heart and to make us into new people when we trust in him as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sin. Now I ask you, this Easter, are you following Jesus for the right reasons or have you missed the day of his visitation upon you? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for not coming into Jerusalem just to, to be a, like a political hero or to solve immediate and temporal problems, but thank you for solving the problem behind everything. Thank you for dying for our sin, bringing us into a right relationship with you when we trust in you and making us into new creations. So often we are captivated by the immediate temporal problems of our day, whether that's superinflation, whether that's uh, war in the Ukraine, whether that's supply chain issues, whether it's how to make the ends meet in our finances. Not that those aren't real problems, but they're not the biggest problem we need solved. Thank you, Jesus, for solving the biggest problem of all, our sin, by your death in our place. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.